Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. Today, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 7 of Ted Lasso, Headspace. And as always, we're looking for lessons in leadership and adult learning. And as we approach the opening of this episode, it's worth remembering where we were last left, with Ted assuming a fetal position in Dr. Sharon's darkened office, finally admitting that he needs an appointment. It may surprise us then that this episode opens to Sonny and Cher's singing, I Got You, Babe. And this is a song the legend goes that Sonny Bono wrote as a cheerful response to Bob Dylan's acerbic, as always, It Ain't Me, Babe. The song is being played maybe a little ironically because we see a montage of Keely and Roy at home. And besides a few highs, haze, and buys, there isn't that much dialogue, but we know exactly what she is feeling. Oh boy, do we ever. After all the lockdowns that we've been through, I think we all know what it feels like to have too much together time with a significant other. And so we will not return to Ted for a little bit in this episode. That's actually part of the structure here, I think, is that the whole season is not going to quickly end as we figure out what's going on with Ted. It's going to be delayed. And in fact, a lot of this episode will be Ted delaying. We now cut to Nate walking to his parents' house, looking down again as we saw him towards the end of the previous episode, at what seems to be Twitter, noting the Wonder Kid hashtags resulting from his sudden rise to coaching prominence. His parents are uh, not overawed, let's say, by his new notoriety. And he will go on to show incredible arrogance towards poor, insecure Colin, who will note has really been his favorite target since his first stand-up routine from season one, both on the field, in front of the team, and later in the coach's office when Colin bravely approaches him. Coach Beard, or maybe Nate's imagined Coach Beard, since this whole scene makes that a little dubious, will eventually tell him to do better by Colin. And it is interesting that Nate chooses to apologize in front of the whole team. Again, it seems to rhyme in some ways with that early insult comic routine he did in front of everybody. Yeah, it seems like Nate is really struggling to calibrate on how much mean, how much nice, who he shares the meanness with and when, because... We did note in season one that some harsh truths were just what people needed. Yeah. And he's also seems to be not fully present in most of these moments. He's always sort of out there in the Twitter sphere, you know, where he's being appreciated the most. He wanted notoriety. He wanted fame and he's getting it. And it's sort of, I think, seemingly pulling him away from his everyday relationships with his parents, with the coaching staff and with the members of the team. After the credits, we see a number of scenes in which we finally see Ted visiting Dr. Sharon in her office, but basically he's refusing to go there. We'll remember that he has long expressed his reluctance to engage in therapy. And I like how in this initial scene, when he does go to Dr. Sharon, they very slowly push the camera in on Ted's face. It's almost like a Coen brother style trick to, I think, indicate his discomfort, the way he's feeling imprisoned. Ted will exhibit this reluctance in various ways, initially fleeing the scene, and then later quite aggressively calling into account not just psychiatry, but the motivations of Dr. Sharon herself. It's interesting how, and we'll talk more about this, but it's interesting how Dr. Sharon makes the comparison pretty directly when she defends herself and her profession between her role and Ted's. Right. They are both there to help others, but they are both being paid. And so at this moment, they have a certain parallelism in their status. And because three storylines are never enough for Ted Lasso, 
We also see Sam wondering where his banter crush has gone. And then on the other side of this exchange, we see Rebecca hesitating, even while Keeley, the show's ongoing emotional maven, and Higgins, the ever-present paragon of domestic bliss, encourage her to meet him. In the course of this pep talk, Keely reveals that while she loves Roy, she feels as if between home and work, they are around each other too much. Humorously, Roy walks in on this, asks that they were talking about him, and when he realizes they were, he is simply not phased. Later in the boot room, Rebecca will tell Keely to stop auditioning her complaints and talk to the person who could actually do something about it, obviously Roy. Ted suggests somewhat humorously that sometimes it's good to bottle things up. And this seems maybe like the two storylines coming together just a bit for a moment with Ted's refusal to actually address his ongoing demons. Once again, though, Roy shows up, asks that they've been talking about him, and they all very promptly reply that, in fact, they have been. I think it's hard to lie to Roy Kent. Yeah, he's pretty in- intimidating. This latter storyline will come to a head when Keeley is watching Sex in the City. Kathy, did you note what is going on in this clip from the now classic, unbelievable as that is, show? Yeah, they show quite a bit of it. It's a very well-chosen clip. I believe that Carrie and Aiden are cohabitating at this point, and it's an argument over how to do that without getting on each other's nerves. Maybe a little bit of a tip of the hat to the lineage of the modern high-end comedy show. Really, in some ways, Sex and the City was the progenitor of everything that was to follow in this space. Yeah, I never really thought about it, but there are definitely some commonalities between the two shows. Keely explains what's been bothering her, and Roy guesses that this is what she has been talking about to everyone in the clubhouse, and he gets very upset. For him, it's about Keely talking behind his back, making him look like a wounded puppy, right? Not addressing this head on. Eventually, though, after a falling out between them, Roy will get accidental wisdom from Jamie, who tells Roy, when Roy's chiding him for his play, that his teammate needs me to give him space. And this is a delicious moment when the student becomes a teacher. As we've noted, by accident, of course, this is Jamie Tart we're talking about, not bright on any level and certainly not in terms of emotional relationships. This story ends with Roy returning home to Keeley and providing her her long-desired time alone. In the midst of all this, we see Ted in the bar, and May, the barkeep, says to him as she hands him a beer, if music be the food of love, play on, give me excess of it. This is our first quotation from a Shakespearean comedy. This is from Twelfth Night. Ted reads it as basically offering him another beer, which seems very Ted-like. And in this quote from Twelfth Night, the Duke in full says, if music be the food of love, play on, give me excess of it, that surfeiting the appetite may sicken and so die. And basically, he's very enamored in an unrequited love situation, which will, for reasons we won't explain now, remain unrequited. And what he's asking for is, give me all this music so I can kill this passion, so I can kill this feeling. Now, whether or not he really means that is another question, but I think that's interesting in that that's exactly what Ted is doing in many ways, is deadening whatever these feelings are. And as he's pointing out in saying, hey, yeah, I'll take another beer, May, in this case, doing it through alcohol, which we've seen him do throughout the series. So if alcohol be the drug of repression, give me more of it. I think that's one possible reading of this scenario, which the only one I can make sense of. Usually, as we pointed out, these do have clear resonance in the episode. Anyways, let's go on. Trent Krim shows up to ask for an official response to the food poisoning episode as he calls it. And this is, of course, how Ted explained his sudden departure from the field in the previous episode. 
And as we've noted, we almost always have an encounter with the press in an episode of Ted Lasso. In the first season, it was almost always a press conference in the press room. This season, it's been other kinds of random, near random encounters. And I'm really not sure how this will play out. But Ted certainly does not fess up to what's happening with him. It suggests he's not being open in this context. And in concert with the continued drinking here, to me, it suggests that he's not really willing to open up to the world and he's going to continue to deaden whatever's bothering him with excessive drinking. Yeah, I take that reading. I think that we got very used to previously that whenever Trent shows up, Ted's going to say the exact truth and exactly what he's feeling. And so we feel the difference now where we know that Ted is obviously hiding something and isn't willing to talk to Trent Krim about it. Right. And the sit-down dinner with him in the Indian restaurant, Ted is very open about his approach, and he knows it's going to be a little controversial, and yet he tells Trent straight out. And of course, this becomes part of his strength. The very last scene of the episode, temporarily at least, wraps up the Nate storyline. And I think that by putting it at the end of this episode, the showrunners are continuing to really emphasize how important Nate's trajectory is this season. The team, at Will's suggestion, have gotten Nate a shirt, a kit shirt, with the Wonder Kid name stenciled on the back. In the final scene, Nate is once again scrolling through Twitter and sees, amongst all the glowing comments, a negative one. He immediately lashes out at Will, telling him that if he ever ridicules him again, Nate will make his life miserable. There's so much to say about this, and this is not really one of the themes I'm planning to launch into at length, but Nate seems to have put his sense of security, his sense of self-worth into this very vulnerable external place called, I don't know, social media, right? As long as he's seeing positive comments about him on social media, he feels good. If he sees a negative one, he feels bad. And that's not a very good footing to stand on. And to make it even worse, once his sense of self is threatened, he doesn't necessarily internalize it. He externalizes it and gets mad at his favorite punching bag. So I'm not liking what I'm seeing from Nate here, and I'm hoping he's going to turn this around. Okay. So what are the themes that you've spotted in this week's show? We have one callback, and then we have one new theme. And the new theme is so important and fun and interesting that I think I'll do the callback pretty fast so we can get to the new one. The callback, not surprisingly, is more about the ins and outs and the ups and downs of having difficult conversations. We've talked a lot about difficult conversations season one, season two, there have been lots of them. And there have been examples of how people avoid them or what people can do in a positive way to make them work and how important it is for relationships to have them and to have them well. So my view is that what's going on in this episode is that we see Keely, who's usually quite good at this stuff, stumble a bit in how she handles the difficult conversation she needs to have in her life. Keely knows that she needs to talk to Roy. She doesn't say this directly, but I'm pretty well convinced that she knows it. But she also needs to get herself ready. And I don't think she goes out there and tries to talk to everybody about Roy, as she does. Rebecca opens the door 
at the very beginning of these sequences of conversations by saying that Roy and Keeley's relationship is annoyingly perfect. And so Keeley, being an honest person, has to respond honestly in that moment. Unfortunately, she just keeps going, right? In different configurations of people, she keeps externally processing what's going on with her and Roy by talking to her support network. And her support network, in this case, are just all people at the club. So I don't think Keeley's intentions are bad, but she definitely messes up. She messes up by taking too long to speak with Roy directly and instead talking to everybody else in ways that it becomes obvious to him that he's the subject of these conversations. I think she's trying to calibrate a bit. She's using her support network as a way to decide, is this a Roy issue? Is this a Keeley issue? Is this a combination? And I believe she's trying to get ready to talk to him. But the difficulty is that these kinds of conversations held behind the back of the person in question can be damaging. And we see this in the scene when Keeley finally does talk to Roy, he gets angry and he gets probably even more angry than he otherwise would have been. So, Mike, I see this as a common issue in offices. I think that people have a lot of things to process. There are a lot of interpersonal dynamics that people need to process a bit before they decide what to do about them. But unfortunately, these things can kind of blur into something that feels like gossip, right? That just feels like venting in an unhealthy way. Have you experienced this? Oh, yeah. And I think this is really tough. And I think it's not always easy to draw that line clearly. In what case it's gossip or complaining? And in which case are you actually saying, here's an issue with someone and I need some help? I think Keely does a pretty good job vindicating that she's in kind of the help mode, but she doesn't get out of that, even when basically Rebecca calls her to the carpet and says, enough, we've given you enough information. It's time for you to make your move. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Like if even Rebecca is saying this is going on a bit, then I think that should have been Keely's hint that she had stepped over the line from getting useful support into really just venting in a gossipy, unhelpful way. Maybe the rule of thumb could be if you need to talk to somebody about another person, and you know, occasionally we all do, pick somebody who doesn't know that person very well. Make it clear that you're just getting your thinking clear before you are going to talk to the other party. And even in saying that, you're going to hold yourself accountable to really do it. That's good advice. Kathy, so what's the new theme that you see at play here? This is a good one. I've been wanting to talk about this one. So this theme is how people can simultaneously want to change and resist change at the same time. And I'm going to be referencing here a book called Immunity to Change by the authors Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. So most of us have a big thing that we want to work on. As you get older and you get more self-aware, most of us know what that big thing is that we want to change. We also know that's going to be the hardest thing to change. Even if we sincerely want to change it, it's really hard to actually do it. Okay, for me, I know that my one big thing that I need to change is to stop avoiding conflict. Logically, I get the value. I get the value of being more direct. And I understand the damage that I do sometimes by being passive aggressive. But in the moment, I behave in exactly the ways that fight against my desire to be more direct and clear with people. So think about it in terms of TED. 
Ted has a similar dynamic going on. He has reached the point where he knows that bottling up and denying his stress and emotions is just not working anymore. He can't be an effective coach this way. He isn't ready to take a step to change things yet either. And this is exactly what the book Immunity to Change explores. Developmental psychologists Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, they argue that when we don't change, it's not because we're lazy or bad people or not sufficiently committed to our goals. The stasis that we feel often results because we hold a hidden commitment. We are just as equally committed to something else that's fighting against our goal. And because it's hidden to us, it's really hard for us to do anything about it because we don't fully understand it or see it. And so this is where you end up with an internal immunity to change system where you want something, yet you're also committed to something that fights against it. So what I think is really marvelous about Immunity to Change as a book is that it guides you through a process of what you might actually do to uncover your hidden commitment and do something about it. And you can almost see in this episode, Ted going through some stages that resemble the steps in that process. And so if you did want to make this change, what would they say the first step should be? The first step is to name your goal. The second step is to look at all the actual behaviors that go against that goal, the things that you are doing or the things that you are failing to do. So let's look at Ted as an example. Okay, if Ted's goal is that he wants to stop bottling up his sadness and emotions, he finds himself in a room with Dr. Sharon, where here's exactly the moment where he can start living that goal. And yet he does all kinds of things that fight against that goal. He minimizes. He calls what happened to him at that recent game a little hiccup. And he says, I don't even know if this is necessary. And then he delays all the little physical comedy around whether he should sit on the couch, should he lie down on the couch, getting distracted by objects on Dr. Sharon's desk. This is all delay. And then finally, and most troubling, he gets aggressive and judgmental saying something like, I think it's bullshit. You expect me to spill my guts, but you aren't listening because you care. It's because you're paid. And Dr. Sharon essentially says later, once they're talking about this pattern of all these behaviors that are fighting against the goal of trying to really stop bottling things up, that he's acting from instinct. And his instinct is leading him to flight and fight. Right, which follows up on what we were talking about last week. So we can see that Ted does have this goal, but he has all these little behaviors, all these behaviors that are fighting against that goal. What should he do next? Well, Keegan and Leahy say that the next step is to pose and answer a question. And that question is, if you were to stop doing all these things that work against your goal, what would you worry about? In this episode of Ted Lasso, I think Sharon does the work here. She names this for Ted. She tells him that he's afraid to talk to her. What is he afraid of exactly? He speculates. Maybe I don't want to learn the truth. Mm -hmm. So Ted is committed on some level to staying in the dark. This is his competing commitment. He wants to avoid some kind of truth about himself. And if you conclude that Ted is deeply committed to staying in the dark, then all those little delaying behaviors make perfect sense. If you're committed to staying in the dark and fear the truth, you might do all the things that he's doing. You might delay, you might minimize, you might lash out. 
Okay, so now he's uncovered that competing commitment that's really getting in the way of him progressing towards his goal. What should he do next? We don't get a lot of information about what Ted fears exactly, but if he was going to go the next step in the immunity to change process, he'd need to look for a big assumption that's baked into that competing commitment. And it looks to me like he believes a very certain thing to be true, that facing the truth will be a negative experience and not worth it, that there's essentially no upside to facing the truth. This is an assumption. He's behaving as if it's true. But once you surface something that you're assuming to be true, you're in a really strong position. You're in the position where you can test it. You can say, is this thing that I'm assuming really actually true? And it seems ready to do it, right? It seems like in the next episode, he probably is going to be ready to talk to Dr. Sharon and he can find out what that experience is going to feel like. If our audience is interested in learning more about this, Kathy, where might they turn? Oh, there's something great. If you like podcasts, if you like Ted Lasso, if you like Brene Brown, there is a very, very obvious place to go for more on the immunity to change. So Lisa Leahy, one of the authors of the Immunity to Change book, was a recent guest on Brene Brown's podcast, Dare to Lead. And Lisa Leahy herself leads Brene through this sequence. It is so interesting, and I highly recommend it. That's great. We'll link to that in the show notes, and also we'll link to the book as well by Keegan and Leahy. And you can get the book and try this process out on yourself. Okay, terrific. So that's our account of Season 2, Episode 7 of Ted Lasso, Headspace. Up next on Lasso Lessons, we'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 8, Man City. 